Hello, everybody. My name is Aaron Fletcher Smith, and uh, over there is Dan Grubb. Hey. And this is the Dan and Aaron Lycorama. Music! <laughs> that is the best Shirley Temple impression I've heard in a long time. I gotta say. <laughs> I mean, I've heard some bangers, but but that one's up there. Um, tonight. On the Lycorama. Um, we're going to continue our concept artist uh, series um, with a yes. particularly weird and awesome one. Um, this is one uh, uh, my, my wife is a big fan of this artist. Um, I know of and, and kind of became a big fan of this artist. Uh, kind of looking in, falling out, looking back in on um, his art career over the course of the past 20 years. Um, the man that brought you the xenomorph, the uh, acid uh, uh, spit dripping alien of the uh, eponymous franchise name, um, H.R. Giger. Hooray! There's no reason to do that. I'll stop. Um, the weird thing is, he also designed the Price is Right uh, studio set. It's bizarre. Right, which is why if you That's go why there's behind... so many oozing... There's so many exactly. oozing pustules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Facing forward, Price is Right set. You go around the back, it literally looks like the colony that they land on in Aliens. It's, you know... Yeah. He, he was, uh, was kind of like Kandinsky in that he did both sides of the art, you know? It's yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. But okay, <laughs> who's that guy? Uh, the double-sided Kandinsky painted on both sides of the. Uh, I learned about that from the uh, Will Smith movie Six Degrees of Separation. Um, he painted on what both sides of the canvas? Yeah, yeah, and then there was oh. one one piece on one side and then another piece on the other side. And um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it was a really. It was a really neat but really weird movie, and it was Will Smith very young in a, a dramatic role. It, it was like before Independence Day, before Men in Black. It was I, I think it was like just just after he had finished his uh, Fresh Prince on uh, uh, a Bel Air. Um, he still had the neon yellow sideways hat. Like legit in the movie, he's like kind of playing off of that character trope. Um, but he turns out to be a, kind of a creepy character that, that kind of latches on to this uh, New Yorker couple. Um, but it's really do, it's really well done in its awkwardness. It's uh, anyway. Um, is that the name of the movie? Oh my god! Now it's gonna bug me. Hold on, it's gonna bug me. Uh, Will Smith, <laughs> six. Yeah, that's it. Nineteen ninety three. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, god, it's got a bunch of people that are now old folks in it now um he's, but yeah Tom Sutherland, yeah. ian mckellen um yeah i forgot heather graham was in it go see it it's weird it's good but it's weird it's one of those yeah. where the further the story goes and the more you start to pick put together why they named it six degrees of separation you're like ah but at the same time you're like stop now please <laughs> So, yeah, it's good. Mm, for that. It's all within the Tropic of Cancer. Yeah, 
yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I will also say it's kind of like within the tropic of cringe, but anyway. Um, so H.R. Giger, uh, another person yeah. that caused people to cringe. Um, That's true. That's true. Yeah. And, you know, before we get too far into it, I just want to uh, call out, uh, put a, you know, the put the lampshade on the lampshade, which is not a phrase, um, that, uh, yes, there is no episode for two weeks ago. We skipped a, we skipped an episode. Mm -hmm. Um, well, we, we took it down because the October 4th episode on Osama bin Laden, we only got up to about 1983 and, you know, just the more we read about that guy, Turns out he's really problematic. Yeah. And well, so we decided to yeah. take down that episode. Yeah. Um, it had only gotten three or 4,000 uh, listens. So, yeah. you know, hopefully not too bad, but... Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the, the Bin Laden like Arama was, yeah. was down. Yeah, no, we apologize for that. You know, admittedly, though, the, the, the worst Well, I wouldn't go was... that far. Well, we apologize for the meta of, of having taken down a podcast episode, you know. Yeah, yeah, the um, confusion. Yeah, the confusion. In retrospect, 20 minutes on the beard. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, we could probably have kept that. Yeah. It's a good beard. Yeah, yeah. The the, the birds living in it, that was fun. That was fun. The yeah. whole motif. Um, oh, habit trailer. Yeah, yeah, that was entertaining. Uh, the analysis that we did of um, uh, the hair, yeah, yeah. That that maybe we'll do an entire episode on epic beards at some point. That's actually legit. Get of it, it. I'm the Giga. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm gonna All put right. that guy five minutes earlier. I like that. Get on with the Giga. Oh, no, that that went from German to Scottish very quickly. Ooh, cut that yeah. out, please. That was horrible. Um, no one should ever hear that. Um, H.R. Giger, the person responsible for the alien xenomorph design and yes. all-around creepy artist. The worst HR department. Yeah. Good old human resources Giger. Yeah, yeah, literally resulted in somebody committing suicide, so... Really not a good HR department to go to. No. Um, no. Wow, that was morbid of me, especially when you get into the story of his life. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I've done no research, so that that's a that yeah. is a uh, oh we'll a get teaser there. for me. Yeah, oh, we'll boy. get there. All right, so um, I'm gonna get a you... big bowl of candy for this one. Yay! Hooray! So you know I'm you love him question mark um sure from the fact that he designed um he was primarily responsible for not only the xenomorph but also for several of the giant set pieces uh, um in the original 1979 movie alien and then also for the visual motif of the alien ships um the uh yeah Giger well, um, and who was it which one was it uh, in the previous episode that designed the human ship? <laughs> the, <laughs> the white, bright, nice, usable. That's actually nice, a great, yeah. 
That's a human great shit. It was Sid Mead. I didn't think about so that. So the last yeah. episode, yeah. Yeah, you're right. You and, got Sid uh, Mead designing the clean, acerbic, um, you know, antiseptic. Everything is a nice, pleasant, you know, work environment and space environment. The uh, yeah, then, space IKEA. Yeah, and then you got Giger designs uh, Bone Hell. Yeah, I, I hadn't <laughs> thought about that, but you're right. The techno-osteo uh, crotches for walls, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, you're right. We're covering both of the design aesthetics from Alien. That really tickles yeah. my fancy. That's really cool. I like that we're doing it's that. It's literally cool. black and white. That's cool. Yeah, it is. The, the xenomorph plane is all dark and shadowy yeah. and, and everything's painted black. And then the human spacecraft yeah. the is bright is very, white. Yeah. Metal and plastic surfaces. Right. Lots of lots of blinky LEDs. Oh, Dan, I love you for pointing that out. Oh, I can oh just there's you. so That's many great. more reasons to love me. You big uh, I don't know about that. Um, well, yeah, you're probably right. So um, the, the thing that I did stumble upon as I kind of put together all of the different little stories about Giger um, between the wiki, between some of the other entertainment links that we'll throw up on here, is that... Um, there was a point, his his career, if you kind of hand wave it and you look at it through a, kind of a filmy lens, his career was almost <laughs> analogous to Andy Warhol's, okay? In that... I like that, dude, through a filmy lens. That's a good yeah, pun. Right. <laughs> um, dude, Giger, uh, he had ridiculous success he 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 struggled for his art right for about 15 to 20 years between maybe not not even that right like from maybe like age 12 to 16 right up until his like mid to late 20s he was a struggling artist um then mid to late 20s yeah there's not a whole lot of successful 12 year old artists out there uh, right right oh you know what actually i've got the date a little bit wrong there no he was older i'm sorry um oh yeah, he was maybe mid-30s by the time that, that he had the success oh, that okay. he got as a result of the fact that uh, Ridley Scott, the director of Alien, got his hands on H.R. Uh, Giger's um, Necronomicon book, flipped through it and said, oh my God, we need to make a movie of this. Um, hmm. From that point, you have Giger basically looking at the success that he accumulated as his name began circulating way faster like he was pretty famous by that point because he was painting um album art for like emerson lake and palmer and um he was doing shows in london but it was him being part of getting alien to the world that made him uh just explode onto the art scene and from there on in every engagement with this dude is engagement with an artist that knows the value of his work. And he's very much like, don't you fucking talk to me. I'm H.R. Giger, right? Uh, th th there's like a lot of that in the the this stuff that, that I looked at. So I was kind of entertained by that as I went through this is, oh, okay, all right. He knew his worth. And not only that, but he was not, he was not willing to step down from the, he was not willing to back down from pointing out either when his artwork was being used without his consent or when his work had been appropriated by somebody. So I thought that was kind of cool. Um, it, it adds a flavor 
to a lot of the stories that are associated with them. Um, I'll also note that generally, as we go through this, it's another way that you can kind of color the stories about him. Um, he, he was always very obsessive about his work and he had a morose disposition. Um, he talked You frequently. don't say. Yeah, right. Gosh. <laughs> yeah, for somebody that produced such rainbows and unicorns and puppy artwork, right. Um, yeah. He talked... I, uh, we, we should say if if you don't know the guy, if the name doesn't ring a bell, look up H.R. Giger, G-I-G-E-R. Right, and then just click images and start scrolling. And, <laughs> or, you know, I mean, think about the movie Alien. Mm-hmm. And, right. uh, oh my God, yeah, this guy, it's some pretty bleak. Yeah. It's like uh, three-dimensionally bleak. Right. Like the yeah. um, the, the Polygon article that I read, um, they, they were basically like, um, they, they talked about how Ridley Scott said that walking through the ship set in Alien essentially felt like walking through Giger's mind. Um, mm. because his best understanding of Giger's mind was based on that Necronomicon book that Giger had published. And apparently him and Scott talked frequently about the fact that like, uh, Giger would say, this is what I see when I close my eyes. And he would do, oh you know, God. kind of that very mysterious, you know, artist type of stuff. Right. Um, but we yeah, Giger, that guy. yeah, that's exactly the one it. in high school that uh-huh. yeah. you, you were real nice to just in case one day yep. things went south yeah 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 he he, he, that same guy that when he said that stuff you looked at him and you went (laughs) yeah oh boy yeah jeez yeah me too i i sympathize with you and i'm sure you will sympathize for me right back right yeah buddy gosh you're awful right every time that i close my eyes i also see a black and morose ribcage hallway yeah happens to the best (laughs) of us man um but yeah, so um, obsessive. You know what I do is eat Prozac. <laughs> day in and day out. And it is the only reason that I am not climbing the walls. The like Prozac the baby does in not help the rib cage from <laughs> manifesting in my brain, mind, I. <laughs> I don't I know what he sounds with... like. I'm just. Yeah. I, I, I just being overtaken by uh, Giger. I would say like I, I, I'm coming back German, to. Is he German? Austrian? Serbian? He's German. He's German. German. Okay. And I was gonna say that like, without having listened to any of the audio of interviews with him or anything, I uh, basically all I did was read when I did this episode. Um, I'm gonna make a horrible generalization that he probably, and I know I'm I'm probably totally wrong here. All I can think of is that he sounds like Armin Zola from the Marvel Universe, right? <laughs> and, and, and that he's just like, and oh, if you yeah. come over here, you will understand the reason that I am always very morose. <laughs> but him inside the computer. Exactly. Not, right. not in uh, Captain America, the one where he's already uploaded. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> no. He's his edit point. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so he was obsessive uh, in nature about his artwork and uh, had a morose disposition. Uh, apparently, he talked frequently about the inevitable and inescapable nature of death. And he 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 talked a lot about how he enjoyed creating artwork that explored 
that concept and and tying birth and death and morbidity and the speed at which a person's life occurs to his art. So that's all there in the art too. I mean, if you look at the other works, uh, especially the 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 one where it's the the chamber, uh, the 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 cutaway of the gun with the chambers. Um, hold on, I wrote the actual name of the work down here. Where was it? Where was it? Where was it? Where was it? Um, Birth Machine, uh, a natural creature oh. illustrated as bullets inside the chamber of a pistol, and each of the bullets uh, looks like uh, uh, like an, a strangely alien fetus uh, loaded around a tube, ready to be shot into life. Uh, yeah, Birth Machine is one that um, uh, you know anybody that you knew in high school or college that likes Tool usually had birth machine up in their, yeah. uh, you know, dorm room. Um, yeah. Tool, uh, ice is in a Neubauten. Yeah. Kraftwerk. Yeah. yeah. Kraftwerk. Yeah. Right. Uh, um, yeah. I'm definitely seeing tool videos coming out yeah. of this. Oh, okay. Yeah. I just saw a picture of his face. Okay. Yeah. I was imagining, um, except with a heavy German accent, um, yeah. Truman Capote's character in murder by death. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so, or, I, yeah, this is seeing him, his face. I wasn't terribly far off. No, no. Except yeah. quite far off. <laughs> but I mean, he's not not far off from the guy that plays Armin Zola in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, though, right? Yeah. Like, you know, the. the... Oh, I like this one with the mutton chops. Oh, dude. Yeah, he look. rocked. He rocked his yeah. mutton chops, dude. Yeah. Even when he was older, he had wicked mutton chops. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's him with like. Uh, Andy Warhol on his worst day. Yeah, uh, exactly. Hairstyle, and then yeah. with the like medieval times mutton chops. I'm yeah. the blacksmith. And I think that's part I'm of the, the reason. The blacksmith that I, who I, I, will bring you to despair. I, I think that's part of the reason that I was mentally kind of uh, uh, connecting him with um, Andy Warhol is that he almost looks like. Andy Warhol, if you took away Warhol's cigarettes and fed him nothing but um, cookies and took away all his sleep, you know, he... he, he <laughs> no he, cigarettes, no yeah, sleep. Yeah, no Here cigarettes, no sleep. <laughs> no okay. friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's No that's, famous that's, cool friends. <laughs> yeah, that's Geiger, you know, although admittedly Geiger did have famous friends and, and that's part partially, you know, the reason that he had such success later on in the 80s. But anyway... Um, hmm. We're going to do a flashback. Um, 1966, he meets the woman that becomes the primary inspiration for a shit ton of his art. Um, so, okay. Yeah. Uh, as a as a Giger layman, uh, mm -hmm. when, uh, so how, I know he comes to, I know his prominence of like Alien yeah, and right. some other stuff in the eighties. But mm -hmm. when, when, when was he like starting out? Like, yeah. Right. Right. You so, said in the sixties, he was like in yes. his twenties then or something. Right. So born, born late forties, he gets his start okay. as part of a poster and print publishing company through the sixties. Um, the, um, hang in, in there, kitty. Yeah. Right. Um, a lot <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to go back and I'm not going to reopen the tab on Giger. It's his, it's in his biography on his website, but it's basically from what I remember, it's, um, he is doing industrial design. 
Um, and, it, it, you know, he's kind of beginning to kind of lean towards uh, industrial manufacturing, car design, stuff like that. Mm. But at the same time, he is producing and producing and producing. And he's a teenager and he's producing these 2D and 3D artworks that become the rough draft uh, for a lot of the art that you end up seeing later on in the book that he produces, the Necronomicon, which is a compilation of the images that he can't get out of his head. Um, so he's doing draft oh. versions of those images during this period of time. So he's already very committed to this these very morbid images of, you know, the hybridization of the flesh and the mechanical, uh, the biomechanical concept. Um, he's yeah, like yeah. into it. And he, 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 he's producing it from like teenagerhood. So the images are there in his head. He can't get them out of his head. Um, <clears throat> he hits his, um, he, I guess it's like mid twenties. It's 1966. Uh, he's graduated from art school. He's, generating just like a ton of work. Uh, he's getting into a few venues here and there. Um, and he meets Lee uh, Tobler. And I'm not sure whether L-I, Lee, is short for something longer, but she's Swiss. Um, she... Um, oh, it says he was Swiss too. Okay. He's Swiss, lives in Zurich. Um, she um, she was uh, studying acting and she was acting in some plays in Zurich um, at the time that the two of them meet. He becomes obsessed with her. The website, Giger's uh, biography on his website describes it as the two fall madly in love. Um, mm -hmm. They never really get married. I never saw marriage in the descriptions across both of the wikis and the, the his bio. Um, so I think it's the two of them just have a long relationship, right? So it, sure. it, it just goes back and forth. They live in an abandoned, condemned house in Zurich because it's all they can afford for a brief period of time. Um, Tobler, by the 70s, um, uh, is, act, is finally acting. She has recurring roles in the theater. Um, around 1970, uh, uh, Giger himself inherits a little bit of wealth from a family member that died. They used to go buy a house in the suburbs of Zurich. Um, the relationship continues to ebb and flow. Um, but around this period of time, he starts producing artwork um, where the biomechanical artwork that he's doing looks like her. Um, it starts to lean mm, in the direction mm -hmm. of being female form, female figure, but it's got her face. Um, yeah. The two of them begin to... Uh, uh, there's always a relationship ebb and flow throughout this period of time. And uh, on the Lee Tobler wiki, they talk about how the two of them may have ended up being a bit promiscuous and they may have had different lovers and stuff like that. So it was an open relationship. They, they came to each other and went as they pleased. Um, and it sounded also like one of the things that occurred regularly throughout this period of time was that there was always this kind of jealousy followed by loving obsession followed by jealousy by um giger including there's a story and i think it's in the, the the lee tobler wiki where apparently there's a there's a time where he calls the theater and they can't find her and then he calls around to some of his friends houses and they can't find her and so he sets out on foot 
in the snow in the winter in Zurich <laughs> to go find her and is just like oh, going boy. around banging on house doors and stuff. And th- they didn't, there wasn't like a resolution to the story. It was just, they, they said something along the lines of like, it is assumed that during this period of time, Tobler was with another man or something like that. <laughs> but at yeah. the same time, Giger is I also knew someone like, like that when I was that age. Yeah. I, similarly, they were, they were not great. No, yeah. no. I not mean, that's healthy. the other thing. These, both of these people, did not the, the the websites did not paint them as like you know these are not these are not um paragons of society these are tortured artists you know that, yeah. that's kind of the bottom line these are tortured artists and they're trying to figure out where where they're being human uh, the, the venn diagram overlaps of them being human versus their art where those venn diagrams end you know or versus where the overlap is anyway 71 Giger moves to London. Um, his art is... Uh, he's reaching a point where the, the, the art uh, career is beginning to take off. Uh, this is also around the same period of time that he gets commissioned to do um, the Emerson, Lake, and Palmer album cover. Um, Lee Tobler, however, um, is... Uh, this is like, a, I think, a year... So there's like a period prior to, and then there is a year and a half period through 1972 to 1973 theater season where she does 130 performances and then Ooh. following that she apparently like works herself to the bone during it falls into a state of depression and decides to break things off with Giger for a while in in 74 uh, she briefly goes off to the United States she tries an American boyfriend um, returns to Giger in early 75 um, it, it's around this period of time that he shows her Lee and Lee Two, which are two hauntingly amazing pieces of artwork that he did, where it's him experimenting with, uh, like, like kind of him finalizing the images of Lee Toller as the biomechanical woman. Um, apparently okay. she hated it. And mm. she hated it so much that she put a hole through one of the two pieces <laughs> oh, like wow. he gave the original to her and and her response was you know they, they they you know read between the lines it was something like you know how the hell could you view me as this or something like that but apparently sure. she, she like tore the thing up he restored it years later um but this is this is a very sad period of time in her life where uh she's she's tried um, these different jaunts after the depression that she had, uh, after the, you know, her, her experience, after coming off of the theater junket, uh, she's having trouble coming out of it. Um, she finds Giger in London having ridiculous success. He gives us, he mm. gives her this artwork. She's like, what the fuck? Um, very briefly after that, she chooses to commit suicide in 75. Um, yikes. And yeah, and, and then, H.R. Giger, being who he is, becomes even more obsessed with the fact that he lost her. So now, now he's like churning our artwork obsessively. Um, the, uh, it's it's um, the artwork. He he revisits the female form. However, they do. Uh, th- this is where uh, yeah, I've got this bullet point down here, where um, between his bio 
between Lee Tobler's wiki and between Giger's wiki and then between um, one of the other um, sites that I was looking at, it was like a, it was like obsession with Giger. Um, I, I got to go find the link mm. for it. Um, so what I wrote was, uh, because this is the best way I could encapsulate it, different sources have varying takes on Giger's obsession with Tobler. Some say that he remained obsessed with her and that the obsession increased after her death resulting in more of the biomechanical woman art. Um, others say that because yeah. women came in and out of Giger's life during the 70s, especially when he was an artist in residency in London, that his obsession with his obsession with the biomechanical women was not because he was obsessed with Tobler after her death, but more so because he had finally kind of worked out the kinks in how he wanted to do that art right and so it's ah. hard to figure out which one it is but sure. either way that period of time 75 76 77 is when a lot of he is the period of time during which he cranked out a lot of the biomechanical woman imagery um right. and and lee and lee too which are two of the most famous ones it's very obviously Lee Tobler's face on the the biomechanical woman. So that's that's a very you know that's a very weird period of time for him. It changes it, it changes subtly who he is. Um, I, I think it you know based on the the, the biography uh, of him on his site, it, it seems to have colored him further. Uh, you know, if you, if you were mor uh, morose and obsessed with death before, how about now? You know, right, um, right. So yeah, it, yeah. Um, so then, uh, there's kind of, you know, we're gonna kind of do a kind of a a, a, a camera wipe, and we get to um, we get to early uh, or sorry, late 1970s, right? Um, and that, that's kind of where you jump, right, to the fact that on the other side of the Atlantic, at some point, Ridley Scott, um, who's done a handful of uh, historical picks and, and some weird experimenting with science fiction pictures at that point, um, he discovers um, uh, uh, Giger's 1977 book, Necronomicon, which is Giger's art book. And it collects a variety of these haunting images that then end up becoming set pieces in the Alien book. And and Scott says, we got to turn this into a movie. This is amazing. Holy crap. Um, so yeah. he hires Giger to produce artwork and conceptual designs for a film. Uh, Scott wasn't sure what the film would be at this point. Um, he begins banging it out. He, he uses... Uh, Giger as an advisor sometimes during the process of story writing. Um, the um, There are some neat images from the Necronomicon book that end up making it into the Alien movie. Um, two of the ones that always stand out to me are, um, I mean, beyond obviously the Xenomorph, that's the most obvious one, there's also sure. um, the Space Jockey, which is this image of this uh, entombed biomechanical human figure manning a, a ridiculously huge cannon in what looks at the same time like a um it looks simultaneously 
uh, like a, um, a, a a turret while also looking like a cathedral while also almost looking like a telescope observatory. Uh, so it's very yeah. stirring imagery. But Space Jockey is another one that comes out of the Necronomicon book that ends up being re recreated in Alien. And that's one of my favorites. That, that one's just, I love the imagery in that one. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, uh, Alien comes out. It's a ridiculous hit. Um, uh, Giger is credited as original alien design. Um, his name makes the rounds. Um, he begins doing more album art. Um, it's it's less so that he becomes a an esteemed artist in the way that, like when we did the previous episode, the way that Sid Mead became an esteemed artist, where people are like, you know, I need you to do set design for my film, you know, or oh my god, since you did this amazing you know imagery of the future, I want you to now you know design my tape player for me. Instead, the the right, response right. is. You get the res this response across various little niche communities. The fetish community falls in love with them. The leather community, they're like, sure. holy shit, you know, you're one of us. <laughs> right, right, um, right. The um, cinemaphiles obviously fall in love with him for the, you know, he's got this visual imagery that he's been able to combine with Ridley Scott's directorial vision and the two of them are able to really have some success um scaring the hell out of people um yeah, but yeah then, making it making it a scary part of a pretty mainstream movie rather than it oh, being man, the thing wow that scares you, you got problems yeah. right exactly don't um, go to his house yeah right and and it's his 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 concepts for um, interiors and sets and stuff like that begin to play into these other people coming out of the woodwork and being like, you know, we should do a bar. We should do like Giger bar. And, yeah. you know, Ibanez guitars is like, we want to do Giger brand guitars. And, you know, so people start to engage with him as an artist from different corners of the world. And yeah. he has the success. So, you know, 70s now we're into 80s so through the course of the 80s he kind of rides the success of alien the thing that's really interesting though is that he rides the success of alien the alien franchise folks do not return the favor <laughs> <laughs> so um the uh the directors begin uh so ridley scott makes some subtle changes to the xenomorph design when he puts it in the yeah. movie later on james cameron uh titanic terminator um mr <laughs> big a, deal mr yeah. big shot yeah he does aliens uh which is the yes. one that kind of almost everybody knows right it's a it's over man game over man you know let's take off nuke yeah, yeah, from yeah. orbit is the only way to be sure etc um, the big giant robo mech suit. Right. Yeah. yeah. Get away from her, you bitch. The alien queen. Um, yeah, yeah. James Cameron tweaks the xenomorph design even further um, just to meet his storytelling needs. Um, then there's even more uh, kind of 
uh, Giger had never heard of him, you know, for Alien 3. And then Giger started to snap uh, when when he saw that his name wasn't uh, showing up. I think it was... Um, the, 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 the way that he's getting credited is diminishing as the films go mm. on. He's having success elsewhere, but, you know, right. they keep using this design over and over again. And the way that they're crediting him is is diminishing him, diminishing in the credits. And so he's seeing less and less of the profits from it. And this guy's not an idiot. You know, he knows what his value is. So I'm going to read to you. I'm going to read to you the letter that he sends to 20th Century Fox when he realizes just how marginalized he was when Alien Resurrection comes out in 1997. All right. Okay. This is fucking fantastic i love it because it just it oozes artistic attitude all right okay it's it november 13th 1997 to 20th century fox the alien quartet has from the very beginning contained my unique and personal style for the first film alien i was awarded an oscar for best achievement for visual effects in aliens a film i was not asked to work on I still received a screen credit for original Alien design. On Alien 3, I was cheated out of the Oscar nomination received by that film because 20th Century Fox gave me the credit original Alien design again instead of Alien 3 creature design, as it was my rightful mm. title in accordance to my contract and the work I had performed on the film. In 1976, oh, I so he did come back and do work. He did work for all four Alien movies, but the way that oh. he was attributed diminishes as each Alien movie comes out. Oh, yeah, yeah, fuckery, yeah. fuckery by Fox. Yeah, that sucks. So letter continues. In 1976, I completed two paintings, Necronom Four and Necronom Five, in which two long-headed creatures appeared. In 1977, these paintings were published in my book Necronomicon by Sphinx Verlag Basel in German. It was in this version of the book that Ridley Scott, in his search for a credible alien creature, came across these two paintings and decided on them for the full-grown alien, using the words, that's it. The statement has been graciously repeated by Ridley Scott in almost every interview about his work on Alien. The creatures yeah. in Alien Resurrection are even closer to my original Alien designs than the ones which appear in Aliens and Alien 3. The film also resurrects my original design for the other stages of the creature's life cycle, the eggs, the facehugger, and the chestburster. Alien Resurrection is an excellent film. What would it look like without my alien life forms? In all likelihood, hmm. all the sequels to Alien would not even exist. The designs and my credit have been stolen from me since I alone have designed the alien. Why does Fox not give me the credit I rightfully earned? And then there's like two paragraph spaces, and then he writes, <laughs> I love this. As for those responsible for this conspiracy, all I can wish them is an alien breeding inside their chests, which might just remind oh, them God. that the alien father is H.R. Giger. Signed, wow. H.R. Giger. <laughs> Holy yikes. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's it's like I said. It's it's like I said, you know, he's like a he's like a jilted warhol, you know? 
he knows the value of his work and he's not willing to step away from it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, seriously. You know, I, I love it though. He is he is full of piss and vinegar, man. <laughs> oh man, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I found that really entertaining. I, I, I so I, I that's I had to read that's the that's the high point of this episode. I had to read that in its full <laughs> in its entirety. Um after my wife sent that to me, I read through it and I was like great oh we got to put this in the episode so yeah um yeah so um i i do want to i i want to um i want to bookmark something here because i think this is now the fourth time that i've mentioned it uh quote unquote on the air within the course of our episodes at some point we are gonna do and you've heard me say this a hundred times now an episode on the failed alien three uh film yeah the alien three that never was it's on the list it's on the list and i i keep we have a big board yeah of topics and it's it's on the list there and I, i keep discovering more and more neat things about that movie uh that never was as i continue to do uh the the uh research uh on various other cool things for the lycorama one of the things that I discovered that was super neat, and it dovetails, I, I just finished uh, the Neuromancer trilogy by William Gibson, which is basically oh, okay. the the literary father of cyberpunk. It's without right. the Neuromancer trilogy in the late 80s through early 90s, we would have never had Ghost in the Shell. We would have never had The Matrix. We would have never had, like black mirror style stories we would have never had the cyberpunk aesthetic um gibson is the nexus point for that he was the one that really struck the match when it came to the idea of a techno future where we're digging through old modems uh you know to to escape to the other side of you know uh techno cyber dystopia but We'll do more on that later. The reason I mention him is because apparently in the run-up to the eventual Alien 3 movie that we got, um, one of the scripts that was written and submitted to Fox as a contender for Alien 3 was written by William Gibson. Um, and taking it full... Oh, wow. Yeah, and then taking it full circle, William Gibson apparently... This is more pulling off of the, the Giger Wikipedia. And then I went and I looked at the William Gibson Wikipedia. And then from there, I started looking at William Gibson interviews. He was obsessed with both H.R. Giger and H.R. Giger's artwork. So it all ties. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It totally ties. Bio, techno, organic stuff. Yeah. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, we uh, will do that at some point. I, I'm excited about doing that one eventually. Um but we'll we'll finish up Giger here. Um, some random final thoughts. Um, you can't do the alien and the xenomorph without also pointing to the fact that the biomechanical woman design finally makes itself finally makes it to the screen in um, the the uh, late '90s movies Species and Species Two where Natasha Henstridge plays right. uh, the sexy alien come to earth who has the ability to 
essentially almost like, like shape shifts, right? Yeah, yeah, right. She can essentially and do then kind she's of all the scary. Yeah, the mystique thing. She can do the mystique thing from uh, X Men, where her skin folds in on itself, and she becomes Lee and Lee too. The biomechanical woman images that you know Giger has been obsessed uh, with now for yeah, twenty yeah, years. Yeah. So that yeah. that concept finally gets used on screen, right? Um, right. So uh, you know, the, the, there are other images. In Necronomicon, uh, that book that he did, that would have ended up in um, other films that almost occurred during the mid to late 80s uh, when you had really weird, really wild folks coming to the world of 80s Hollywood and saying, you know what we should do? We should do this. You know what we should do? We should do that, etc. Right. Like, right, right. Buckaroo Banzai is one of those films that made it past the threshold and actually got made. Where you've got a bunch yeah. of weirdos that came out of the woodwork and said, you know what we should do, which would be really weird. And then they they found the right combination of studio heads to say yes. But for every right. few genuinely yeah, like what weird. If, what's that? What if Flash Gordon was. Exactly. Uh, Right. A weird Italian guy instead of a weird Chinese guy. Right. So it's not as racist. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, still some some weird Giger-ish uh, techno-organic. Yeah. yeah. Plug no. yourself into the spaceship stuff. Yeah, for sure. Flash Gordon and is a throw Jeff Goldblum in there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh. And uh, and what's his name? Robocop. Uh, yeah, right, well, right. Weller. Yeah, Peter Weller. Paul Weller. Yeah. Is that Peter his name? Weller. Peter Weller. Yes. Yeah, um, like put a couple of weirdos like that in there and oh man, that movie rules. God, it's so good. It's so good. I um yeah, every once in a while I try to throw kind of meta jokes uh, uh, uh when when I have to speak in officialese for my job. Um I, I love to throw meta jokes about, you know, uh, well we ran this past the Banzai Institute and they had no problems with it, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um that's Whereas also something. In meetings, I just, I just like to draw, put everything to a sudden halt and say, "Wait, yeah. wait, right. someone's crying." <laughs> <laughs> I love that scene. Why are we not going forward? God. Oh my god! John Lithgow. Oh my gosh! Oh, he that, did so he good in that. Oh, what a great a, movie! Yeah, he was such a tour de force in that. Um. All right, I'll do another random tie real quick before we go back to Giger. Um, Denise and Michael Okuda, who do, um, who are part of the um, uh, visual and special effects design crew, uh, as well as Doug Drexler and Rick Sternbach. We'll do an episode on them in a while here uh, in terms of concept okay. artists. They're largely responsible for the Next Generation Deep Space Nine Voyager Star Trek era aesthetic. All oh, okay. of the panels... In 90s to 2000s Star Trek included jokes referencing Buckaroo Banzai, Akira, um, uh, SWAT Cats, um, uh, Cutie Honey, Neon Genesis Evangelion. Like, they peppered Oh, what, like these... on the little yeah. text? On yeah, the, the text you can never read on those buttons. Oh, yeah. yeah, cool. Yeah, as that's a matter of fun. fact, that's, that's one of the things like that, that... Yeah, that's one of the things that um, Trekkies have been having a lot of fun with, 
as uh, the the TV shows have been getting HD restorations, is that you finally, if you pause some of the episodes as they pan past like turbo lift doors, you can see where the official signage may say something like, you know, turbo lift alpha three seven connects to deck 14 and deck 18. And then below it will be another line. Again, tiny text you would have never been able to read on a CRT TV. That'll say like, remember, no matter where you go, there you are, which is a joke from yeah. Maru Bonsai. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, cool. the, the engineering core of the Enterprise D has a placard on it that says that it was built by Yoyodyne Industries, another Buckaroo Banzai nice. joke. So, yeah, nice. it's it's all... I, I, I love when it's interconnected. You know this about me already. I, oh, but, yeah. You know, I, I love when it's interconnected. And so that's, that's one it that I always... Yeah. Twice as fun. Makes it so much more fun to kind of talk about it and, and giggle about it excitedly. Um... All right, so yeah, but let me let me finish up with Geiger. Um, through the '90s, uh, he works with several different artists to create Geiger bars in Switzerland, which basically allow a visitor to come in and essentially walk through his mind. Finally, which is the thing that he's uh, sort of been obsessed with for years is inviting other people into his headspace. You know, um, yeah. He, my favorite bit. Uh, in in the notes that I've got down here is that um, he um, in 1998 he purchases this St. Germain castle in Gruyere, Switzerland where he lives until his death in 2014. It is now okay. the H.R. Giger Museum. Uh, oh, so, all right. <laughs> but it's like, dude, dude had enough success that he was like, and now I shall buy a castle. <laughs> yeah so i can't fault him for it yeah it's like good good that's a good ending that's a that's that's a good ending you know relatively happy ending yeah all things considered yeah yeah exactly so um i um the one the one uh i guess the main thing people know him from is alien um Mm -hmm. one thing that i knew him from the yeah. only other thing I knew that he had done yeah. was, uh, God, probably 20 years ago, I bought a Dead Kennedys record. Yes. Um, Frankenchrist. Yeah. Their third album, I think. Yep. And yeah, if you don't know Dead Kennedys, they're a very political, very left, uh, punky punk, punk punk band from the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and, uh, it was Jello Biafra, the singer, tried to get it to be the cover art or the fold-out art, but mm-hmm. instead uh, they ended up doing it as a, a a poster folded up insert inside the record sleeve. So you buy uh, this record and this poster comes inside it. Mm-hmm. It was a poster-sized print of an H.R. Giger painting and oh my goodness, is it gross? Yeah, as a matter of it fact, it is gross and the, the, it's dirty, dirty parts. The and wiki it is upsetting. The, the, the wiki, <laughs> the wiki says that apparently when that got released, um, they got sued for like uh, vivacious imagery or something like that. That the dead it was, uh, was taken um, to court over. Dis- that. It was like distributing obscene material that to was minors. It. That something was it. like that. And like it had a sticker <laughs> on it. There was a sticker like, "Hey, there's gross stuff. Not, you know, be 18 Right. 
right, and right. and they fought it. They went to court and they fought it, Good. and uh, Good. they ended up winning. But it just yeah. about killed the record label. It just about killed Alternative Tentacles, uh, and um, not they basically th- through the purchasing and donations from fans, they were mm-hmm. able to keep the record label going. They were able to, okay, okay. That's cool as hell. Yeah, so, I did not so, know yeah. that. That's cool as hell. Yeah, yeah. AT kept going. Yeah, uh, yeah. Alternative, tentacles, alternative Tentacles, they kept going. They, you know, they put out Wesley Willis CDs and stuff. Oh, so, yeah, that's they kept neat. Going. Oh, neat. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, that, uh, they, they almost went under just because of the lawsuits and to lawyer, yeah. you know, fighting a lawsuit's very right. expensive. That's why, right. uh, Disney always wins and. Uh, Joe Schmo usually loses. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Um, but yeah, and I saw that, and I was like, "Oh, neat! What's this?" And I opened it and went, "Ooh, okay. <laughs> I, I didn't know that was gonna be there." Okay, I didn't know that Shoo. could be connected to that biologically. Oh my god. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I had one look so, at yeah, that, that during the Google surprise. search results, and I was like, "Okay, I've seen enough of that. I now understand yeah. that that was produced." Okay, yeah. now I'm going to move on. <laughs> um, and oddly, he did uh, a few things with um, Debbie Harry from Blondie. Yes. I, he, I knew there was one where he painted her and it was like all her bones and guts were on the outside. And yep. he did an album for her solo album. He did the cover art, one of her solo albums. He his involvement. So that's interesting that they teamed up a couple you know, a few times. Yeah. It's that, that was when I talked about those kind of various people coming out of uh, different corners of the arts uh, communities uh, during the eighties, um, you know, um, edgy, uh, hardcore and, and kind of uh, pushing the, the uh, boundaries of artists and record labels uh, saw yeah, yeah, him the- actively. They they were the like, other ones. Dude. The other bands that he did cover art make sense. Uh, yeah, uh, Danzig mm-hmm. and Carcass. Right, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. He designed Debbie the mics. Harry, I would not have uh, would not have uh, guessed that one. Yeah, yeah. It would have been hard for me to pin that. But then also, I have to admit, you know, Debbie Harry. This is now I think the third time that Debbie Harry has come up on our podcast. Pretty freaking cool woman. You know, oh, maybe yeah, we should she do an rules. episode on her, you know? Yeah, she's um, rad. Yeah, but I mean, hell, she's doing stuff with Giger, and she's doing stuff with uh, Marauder, then uh, she's good people in my book, you know? And um, John Waters, she did Hairspray. Oh, that's right! Oh, my God! Was it God. the remake that she was in? Oh, my God, I completely forgot Because there's the that. original right. movie with Ricky Lake, and then they redid it with John Travolta. I think she was... I forget which version she was in. I can't remember either. No, I... Yeah. I think the, I think the remake. That's one of those anyway. where I'm, I'm aware that that exists, but I've never sat down to watch it end to end. Um, oh, that's a fun one. Yeah, I'll have to... Yeah. Like, it's funny because my in my headspace, I always mentally kind of overlap uh crybaby john waters is crybaby with uh, hairspray and crybaby always kind of tops out yeah similar themes similar soundtracks yeah they're both love letters to the doo-wop and right oldies scene yeah yeah but uh yeah hairspray was 
I mean, yeah, they're both they're both fine and good and mm-hmm. have good soundtracks, but right. Hairspray was definitely like the bigger, uh, wilder success. They made a Broadway show out of it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I that's that's one where I'm gonna have to go sit down and watch it eventually, and then briefly uh, or, or immediately follow it with watching Crybaby so that I can continue to have the two of them be completely <laughs> obscured in my head. Um, yeah. Just have them both playing at the same time. Yeah, exactly. One on the left screen, one on the right screen, and I'll I'll pull some of uh, Malcolm McDowell shit from uh, Clockwork Orange. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um. So let's see here. Uh, I don't have anything else. Uh, I, I'll note my my my. I put my uh, final uh, or sorry, my favorite works uh, down at the bottom, and we've already pretty much mentioned them repeatedly. Um. We talked about birth machine um everybody yeah that listened to tool had a birth machine poster in their room in college. <laughs> um i will I, I will footnote real quick um talking about bands and artists loving his stuff um let me find the dude's name i want to make sure that i get the dude's name right um jonathan davis the lead singer of corn commissioned yeah giger to design um a mic stand which he then took with him uh, for all of uh, the various tours by Corn. So there's this uh, oh, okay. the the mic stand that that dude uses essentially looks like if a xenomorph had like assimilated a microphone stand. It's really cool. It's, it's erotic <laughs> right. and creepy and 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 other you know alluring. It's pretty fucking cool. Um, that does ma- remind me in uh, one of the. Uh, in the Dead Kennedys uh, obscenity to minor uh, trial uh, or lawsuit or whatever it was, uh, one of the (laughs) one of the points raised Mm -hmm. was uh, when they were you know, it was basically saying you're, you know, giving this pornographic smut to children. Right. They said if you consider this sexy if you consider this pornography, then there's something deeply wrong with you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, freaking God, that was that was the argument during the '80s, right? And I mean, that's in the right. or no '90s. That was something that you and I going back to being, you know, middle schoolers, high schoolers used to joke about um, with a flavor of irony uh, is that 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 was the era of um, Tipper Gore and then the um, Protect the Children. Yeah, Protect the Children. Yeah, and the the Family Coalition. Yeah, exactly. Coming out of the the woodwork with, you know, blah, 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 the children, blah, 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 the children. And it's like, this barely scratches the surface of things that you have to worry about kids not seeing. All right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Dad beating up mom. Well, that's normal. We, everyone sees that. We, right. we really need to worry about the F word. Right. Right. That's right. what's going to put them in a home. Right. Right. Put them right. in juvie. Yeah. Get them on, get them on drugs. Yeah. It always makes me think of, you know, um, the argument, uh, I think, I cannot remember whether this is a thing that Jello Biafra said or whether this is a thing that I remember watching at the same time that I was watching the interview with Jello Biafra, I think on Sally Jesse Raphael. It was around that same period of time where oh, I was doing wow. some research on something else. But 
it was either Jelly Biafra or someone else. There's this great quote where they look at the person interviewing them and they say, how can you describe the visual imagery that we're including in the stuff that we do as excessively violent when you send children into a church that shows bloodied and battered images of Jesus Christ hanging from a piece of wood every Sunday? Yeah, How is what true. we're showing you different yeah. from these images of Jesus having been beaten like, you know, and, and, yeah. and Bleeding visually showing head, all of this hands, blood stomach, and, and yeah. Yeah, nails through hands. And they, they make sure that you can very clearly see the nails through hands. Why is there a difference between these two? Is it only because you accept the narrative and the morals that come with the story that you're telling with that? And you don't accept the narrative and the story and the morals that come with the thing that we're trying to convey. Do you think maybe that's the reason, you know? And I remember whoever it was, I, I, I almost want to say it was Biafra. It may have been, it may have been early. Gore. I mean, it sounds like something he'd say. Yeah. But I, I just remember, you know, in the TV show episode where he throws that out, you, everybody, everybody goes, you know, there's like that general murmur, yeah. that rutabaga, rutabaga of, Oh shit, he's right. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah. fuck. It's like oh, I hate right. it when he makes a point. Yeah, right, right, right. Oh damn it, the yeah. dude with the mohawk is smarter than us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I, I wouldn't want him to corner me at a party, but uh but he makes a good point now and then, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but reciprocally I would love to <laughs> In sit fact down I with think I have been tea. cornered at a party by guys like that, for yeah. sure, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, what I said <laughs> a, a second ago. Yeah. A guy very similar to, to be to Jello. Uh there was a, a a punk band, hardcore band playing at my house and okay. uh, he was like, Yeah, come on, come on and Mosh, mosh. I was like, okay, I'll mosh with you. Oh, like, that's fine. okay. And All then right. he punched me in the face a few times. And I'm like, okay, I'm not having fun anymore. <laughs> He's like, what? Come on, this is great. Come on. Like, no, I'm not having fun. And then no, that's not later moshing. on, he tried to explain why that was cool and fun. I'm like, no, I, that's okay. Where yeah. I didn't have fun. So yeah, no, that's a <laughs> slightly different level of pain than I was ready for. Yeah. <laughs> we, we have, we're on different levels. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is acceptable. Yeah. I'm going that outside also, now. That also harkens back <laughs> to uh, the handful of folks that both you and I have known that have different pain thresholds than us uh, that through the course of their 20s and 30s would do things like, hey, watch what happens when I move this thumbtack in my arm. Oh, God. <laughs> oh. And we would look oh. on <laughs> simultaneously, yeah. uh, like, morbidly fascinated yeah. and disgusted. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> and we would go, perhaps you have a different pain tolerance than we do. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, you and yeah. I sure have different outlooks in life. Yeah, huh? exactly. Right. <laughs> right, right. Jeez, I forgot by, about that. Yeah, followed by. <laughs> what a, oh, my you God. Picked just a, <laughs> you picked the exact right episode to bring that up. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Perfectly contextual. Yeah. <laughs> well hey uh yeah. i'll i'll do a closer of a link uh this the the same guy that aaron and i know chris yes. uh was a big fan of what we're going to talk about next yeah and, uh, so the next episode will be one for that and we'll get to that yeah. in a couple of weeks yeah so uh with that said uh this has been the hr giger episode 
I hope I'm not cutting you off. Is there anything else? That's it, man. Knock it out. All right. Close us out. And this has been the HR Giger episode of the Dan and Aaron Like Arama. And Aaron, take us out with our trademark closing music. Dong, 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 dong,